following is a chapter reading for the Twig audiobook. Please support the original author at twigserial.wordpress.com. Thank you. Chapter 5 I watched as Jamie used a pen to sketch out a rough image. Head was narrower, taller than wide, I commented. Most heads are. That looks round. Also, he didn't look sinister, but he didn't look interested either. It was cold. Like Helen sometimes looks? I considered. No. You then, on a bad day after an appointment. I don't know what I look like after an appointment. They don't usually let me have access to reflective surfaces, and I'm not usually gawking at myself either. Jamie leaned back in his chair, and his head bumped my chest, where I was leaning over the back of the chair. He remained where he was, looking up at me. You had a look in your eyes like all the joy had gone out of the world. Depressed? No, Jamie said, um... He turned a page in his notebook. On the fresh page, he began to sketch. He was using a fountain pen that flowed fairly freely, but his hand moved with some speed and dexterity. It was interesting to see, because Jamie wasn't a strong artist. He made my eyes too small, the position slightly wrong, paused, then went back, expanding, making the top of the eye into my eyebrows, and drawing my eyes at a larger size. It was a rough sketch, and it was a sketch that showed my face in heavy shadow, the lines noticeable, thick. At first I took it for a caricature, exaggerating my features, but Jamie wasn't good enough to do that. The hair was drawn in messy, framing it all, and the lines marked my cheeks as being more gaunt, with thin cross-hatching for the shadows in the recesses. I realized that it wasn't a recent picture, that my eyes were larger in proportion to the rest, because it was a picture of me years younger. Near the beginning. Drawing from memory, rather than talent. I leaned forward, and it was as though I were looking into a mirror cast in paper. My eyes were narrow, my lips thin and slightly parted, and all of the features of my face and ears were fine to the point of being sharp. Jamie was already putting down notes below and to the side of the image. I glanced at the first. Drawn for a discussion with Sly during the case of the bad seeds. Case of the bad seeds, I commented idly. Placeholder, he said. He was already going on to write more. Normally I wouldn't have been able to resist reading over his shoulder, but I found I couldn't keep my eyes off the image for long. The eyes were just scratches of black ink almost hidden in the shadows that had been etched around them, but they took up much of the focus. This was that time I had to do two appointments back to back, I asked. Only time my cheeks would have been that hollow. Jamie didn't respond, but his pen moved, indicating a line he'd just jotted down. He tapped his fountain pen against paper, leaving three blotchy dots in the margin. From memory, Sly in the tower after he ran away, before he recovered from one month's appointment 
he had to do the next. Reading the line, I suddenly felt excruciatingly uncomfortable, and the hour-old bruises from my encounter with Ed weren't why. Feeling so restless, I couldn't bear it. I turned away from Jamie, his chair, and his book, and I paced across our little dorm room. Two beds, each with a chest at the foot, one desk, and one bedside table between the beds with drawers for us to share. Mithmont was fancy, but not so fancy that we each got a palace. Real estate mattered, if nothing else. We didn't think we'd get you back, Jamie murmured. We suspected you were lost. That's not it, I said, forcing my voice to sound different from how I felt. I worried I didn't sell it very well. No, it's not like Helen is, and it's not like that, okay? That's not the look they had. Okay, Jamie said, sounding very normal, placid, and very calm. Though I didn't like it, I was finding the conversation helped me clarify my interpretation. They weren't lost. There was emotion there. They were human, but... They weren't nice humans. You're not a nice human sometimes, Jamie remarked. I shot him a look. Only saying, Sly. Only saying. I looked at them, and I knew they were the sorts who'd stick their parents with something sharp and then light up the family home, or try to drop a piece of masonry on someone they didn't like. You'd... I narrowed my eyes, making the look darker, and more intense. He seemed to give up, pulling his hands away from the page, slumping back. Yes, I got it. But if you can't tell me how they looked all murderous, I'm not sure I can draw it. I'm not sure I can draw them in the first place. It's fine, I said. Don't fret about it. Think you'd recognize them if you saw them? If I saw them? No, they were standing in shadow. If I talked to them, maybe. There are 1,200 students at Mithmont, give or take, ranging from year 1 to year 12. It's going to take you an awful long time to talk to them all. Yeah, I said. I was still on the far side of the room. Three sets of my uniform had been provided, along with a little cloak and hood for the rain, and an umbrella, all stacked neatly on the chest at the end of the bed. My bedside drawer had a new comb, bottle of toothwash, washcloth, and a new set of books. Nothing that was mine. I didn't like it. The office back at the hedge, with the grill on the windows and the bookcase blocking the door, had felt less like a cell than this. There, I'd been free to be me. Here I was being made to conform, just like some of the fruit I'd seen grown at the academy, placed inside molds that would shape their growth. Fruit shaped like certain animals, or like human faces. Were our murder children in that same situation? I frowned. I'm thinking. Yeah, Jamie twisted in his seat, elbow over the back of the chair. Why here? I asked. Resources are available on multiple fronts. You've got access to children, you've got access to tools and starter labs. Maybe things go missing, maybe it gets put back at the end of the day? Maybe, I said. One way or another, something is going on with their heads. Either they're being made to do something they normally wouldn't, or they're not them, and something more nefarious is going on. 
nefarious. There are parasites that induce suicidal behavior in the host as part of the life cycle. Sure, transoplasma felidae, feverish behavior and a compulsion to drown oneself. Weaponized version was transoplasma nesis, but that's our reams of people biting off their own tongues to choke on the tongue or aspirating the blood. Well known enough. I'll take your word for it. Maybe the students we're talking about have a parasite in their heads, something that's making them act funny. Maybe we're dealing with the parasites and not the children themselves. Jamie seemed to consider a moment. Raises questions. You ask, I try to justify. Why do they care about us? They're complex, preset instructions. Jamie shook his head. I don't buy that someone capable of that would be here and not at the academy making a fortune. Then they're paranoid, like they're rabid, they're wary of everything. Why us? I started to come up with an explanation, then dismissed it. Felt weak, like too much of a reach. Mm, What if it made them suggestible? Broke down the walls in their heads, left them open to receiving instruction. Get access to the children, slip them something that leaves them open to being influenced. We'd see it in their behavior, Jamie said. What, that they'd be willing to take orders? Follow the rest of the sheep? We're in a school, Jamie, I said. Point. A highbrow school. Look, I'm not sold on the parasite idea, but we've got an awful lot of children here, ones that might be more vulnerable to whatever or of an age where some symptoms might be easier to hide. Maybe the fact that we're all fitting into some cookie-cutter archetype is an advantage for our puppeteer in the background. If their little experiments feel disoriented, have lost memories, if their behavior is a little outside the norm, all our bad seed has to do is imitate their peers. Jamie was nodding, already thinking the idea through, rounding it out. If they act too far out of line, then the faculty steps in, gets them to shape up. If that fails... What happens when someone futzes up and doesn't look like they're going to straighten out? Detention, Jamie said. Or a talk with the headmistress. You don't think she's the one doing it? I rolled my head to one side, then the other. I talked to the woman. I didn't get that sense out of her. Why? I gave Jamie an annoyed look. It's good to think about why, Jamie said, his voice quiet but not meek. You have a good sense of things, but it's important to identify the details that are feeding into that sense. You see little details, and your brain picks them up and puts them into storage while your conscious mind doesn't register them. Prey animals use that low-level awareness a lot, figuring out that a predator could be nearby, and we still have traces of that prey thinking. I don't see myself as a prey animal, I said, smiling. The idea is sound, Sai. We all use that sense to some extent, but you're a little better at it than most. You can train it, but training starts with being more aware. Think about your surroundings, pay attention to the details, and... A knock sounded at the door. You too decent in there? Gordon asked, voice muffled by the intervening door. Am I ever decent? I asked. The door opened. But it wasn't just Gordon which surprised me. He was accompanied by a boy, narrow in build, with thick eyebrows and wiry black hair cut a finger's width from his head. It didn't look like one of the boys that would be in Gordon's cadre. 
We ran into each other at the door, Gordon said. I know him, Jamie said. Book trade? Yeah, the boy said. He held out two dime novels. Read them? Jamie glanced at the novels. Yes, but it's fine. I'll trade. He opened a drawer in the desk, pulling out five more dime novels. Dollman and the Song of the Moon? Read it. Dollman and the Revenge of the Swarm Queen? That's out? The boy stuck out his hand. Jamie dutifully handed over the book, no more than a hundred pages. I liked this one, Jamie said, but you might want to wait until there's more material. What's that? The boy asked. Huh? Jamie asked. I turned and I started to cross the room before I saw Gordon moving in the same direction. He was faster and he was closer. I deferred to him. Before Jamie was able to process just what had grabbed the boy's attention, Gordon touched the cover of Jamie's notebook and flipped it over. It slapped closed and slid a bit across the desk. Jamie put out a hand to stop it. That's Jamie's journal, Gordon said. You don't read someone's journal, pal. Oh, the boy said. He turned a little pink. Didn't know. Sorry, Jamie. It's okay, Jamie said. That picture was something. Scary, if I can say so, the boy said, turning to look at me. That was you? You don't comment on someone's journal if you happen to get a look at it either, Gordon said, his voice firm. The boy's face turned even pinker. Mickey, Jamie said, offering a bit of relief where I would have pressed the advantage. Take a look. Jamie held the other three little novels so they fanned out. A lady in white and a rat crawling out of the darkness, a man with a bird mask, and a handsome young man with a dog accompanying him through a forest. What's that last one? Mickey asked. Jamie pulled it away before Mickey could grab it. When we stopped by the academy last weekend, you see anyone go off in a very small group? Very small? More than three, less than ten. Uh, some special students got instruction with professors, or got to sit in on classes. Top of certain classes or something. But they were alone. Yeah, Jamie said. No, I don't think so. Okay, thanks anyway, Jamie said. He put the books down, then handed over the one Mickey had expressed interest in. Barbara John and the Dark Forest Monster. Keen. Gordon stepped out of the way while the boy headed back to the hallway. He closed the door behind him and stood with his back to it. Asking questions like that can draw attention. I'm very careful about who I ask, Jamie said. Okay, Gordon said. He seemed to take that at face value. He didn't mention Jamie's lapse about the book. Gordon and I wouldn't go after Jamie for that any more than any of the others would come after me for my behavior after an appointment. We had our strengths and we had our individual weak points. If everything was working as it should, we covered the weak points and highlighted the strengths. That meant accepting that sometimes Jamie had enough stuff in his head that he was a little slower to get things rolling when surprised. If I'd been on the ball, I would have reminded Jamie, but my head hurt. It's time for dinner, Gordon said. Thought I'd check in. Still alive, I said. No surprise murders. Gordon's expression didn't twitch. What do you think? We were thinking that maybe the structure of the school is being used to shape or correct behavior where it might go off the rails, Jamie said. I cleared my throat, and Jamie amended his statement to say, Sai thought so. 
It makes some sense. Something to watch out for, Gordon asked. Quirks and behavior? Students pushing the limit and getting pushed back in line by the group, I said. And it might be worth seeing who's in charge of correcting the students when they get too problematic. Gordon nodded. Our mad doctor or doctors act the role of the murderer, the children are the murder weapon, and that weapon needs to be controlled and concealed. The school is a setting for it. That still leaves questions. Who, how, why? Who is the murderer? How are they doing this with the students? And why are they doing it? What's the motive? Jamie asked. How also are they giving orders? Gordon asked. The students here got orders to kill us. When? What form did it take? Food for thought, I said. I perked up. Speaking of food... That was contrived, Gordon said. Brain feels sluggish, and I haven't had an actual meal in... I counted on my fingers, then paused, stuck. When did we eat before the snake charmer? Gordon blinked. At that point, I think the question is academic. Have you had water? I had some water, yeah, I said. He frowned. If you hadn't, I'd wonder how you were still standing. Let's slap a feed bag on that face of yours, Si. And you wonder why you're short. I grabbed the comb from the bedside table and hooked it at his head. He caught it, which didn't surprise me. We collected ourselves, getting our things. Jamie picked up his notebook, tucking it under one arm. The pen was capped and slipped into a breast pocket. Gordon was all set up, and all I needed was a bit of protection from any rain. The school was arranged into a square with the yard in the middle. The front entrance sat at the southern wall with the front office, infirmary, and other administrative rooms. The west and east sides of the square had classrooms. The more interesting area was the northern end, furthest from the entrance. Here we had the dorms, boys at the west corner, girls at the east. The two sides of the dorms were separated by the teachers' quarters and washrooms on the upper floors, and a spacious dining room on the lower floor. I supposed the idea was that it made mingling harder. The dorms were ordered by year, with the older students on the upper floors, and being right in the upper middle of the range of ages, we were left to make our way down on our way to the dining room. My eyes searched the crowd looking for a familiar face or feature. I'd told Jamie I wasn't sure if I could place them, but that didn't stop me from trying. Kids milled around us. Ed was asking about you before your little tussle under the tree, Gordon commented, keeping the conversation to stuff we could talk about freely. Tussle? I'm trying to phrase it so I don't hurt your feelings, Si, Gordon said, sounding as condescending as he was able. Besides, if I was honest... I'd have to say you didn't just embarrass yourself. You embarrassed all of us. I jabbed him. He took it without flinching. I'm guessing that following your usual pattern, you're going to get in trouble ostensibly to see how the justice system at of Mithmont operates, Gordon asked. The question could be taken two ways. Anyone hearing would think I was a troublemaker, which wasn't wrong, but he was asking if I'd see which faces or individuals might be tied to the correction of errant students, or errant bad seeds, as the case went. The maneuver had other uses. If our opposition here was less graceful, they might well get themselves into trouble just to follow me or keep an eye on me. 
Simply paying attention to see who acted and reacted after I got myself into trouble could reveal a great deal. But my answer to Gordon was just a, not just yet. No? Still waiting to see what happens after my brawl with Ed. Jamie, trailing a bit behind us, snickered audibly. Gordon openly scoffed. <laughs> brawl. You got beat, Cy. I was talking to some of the others, and Ed actually got worried when someone suggested you might be a real scrapper growing up in the orphanage. I nearly split something, trying not to laugh. Ha ha, I said, without humor. We reached the end of the dining room, and the girls were filtering in through the door on the far side. It was nice, very spacious, all long tables of dark wood, benches, with the two sides separated by a buffet-style table. The kitchen was visible, a recessed area, with the chefs busy at work over various stoves. Students aged 12 to 16 were wearing aprons, carrying food out. Racks of bread, bowls of salad, and empty glasses were placed on the table, while larger pots of food were placed on the buffet table between stacks of plates. Stew, soups, and portions of meat. From the smell in the kitchen, they were already working on dessert. I took it all in, studying it. The system... Gordon leaned close, murmuring, Put yourself into their shoes. How many ways can you see to poison someone? Pre-assigned seats, I asked. No, but they'll call us together by homeroom for a roll call soon, Jamie said. Make sure all the students are present and accounted for, Gordon elaborated. Dust the glasses with something, poison the silverware, deliver the poison while serving water, refresh the bread bowl or salad, drop something in the food while we go from the buffet table to our seats, or simply take advantage of bumps and shoves that come with being in a crowd of hungry students to stick us with a needle. Seven, off the top of my head. Lillian and I counted out twelve ways they could have gotten me looking back in retrospect, Gordon murmured. Jamie and Helen added one each when they got back from the academy. Kind of takes the joy out of eating for the first time in a week, I murmured. You shouldn't eat too much on an empty stomach anyway, Jamie said. I made a face, but I didn't take my eyes off the crowd. I saw Helen and Lillian on the other side. Helen had a bevy of girls around her, and she was playing it up. Lillian stood off to one side, talking it to a teacher. Oddly in her element, in a very not-the-way-she-acts-at-home way. Incidentally, I said, still looking over the crowd for a glimpse of the boys I'd seen through the window. I didn't see any telltale signs, and I certainly didn't see them together as a group. What would we do if I happened to spot a possible culprit? Signal me and Helen. We'll go after him. I nodded. Easier if you're together. We'll sit together as a group. Okay, I said. Sure enough, we were called to specific tables by our homeroom teachers. They read our names off the lists, and then gave the official go-ahead to get food. I held back out of the way while everyone stampeded for the buffet table or ran over to reunite with friends. Nobody returned to the seats they'd been in for the nightly attendance, and the teachers didn't enforce anything. There were striations by year and groupings of cliques, but no divisions beyond that. Helen approached with a group of her friends, and Gordon went to talk to his clique. The teenagers had all gathered around the buffet table and were screening out the kids, claiming the first pick, but Gordon's group looked set to take up the first gap that had formed. 
I appreciated that he was going out of his way to stay in our line of sight, allowing us to watch his back. Sigh, was it? One of Helen's older friends asked, an attractive brunette with her hair in a short bob. She'd hiked up her skirt just a fraction beneath her uniform top, so the bottom of the skirt was higher, revealing more of her very nice-looking legs. I realized I'd been caught looking and met her eyes without a trace of shame or guilt. You can call me whatever you want so long as you give me your name first and maybe the number of your dorm room. She smiled amid some oohs from the other girls in the group, then gave me a pat on the head. That was a good try, and it might have worked, but you're a little too young for me, and I like the idea of a man who can stand up for me. You saw my duel with Ed, I spoke my realization aloud. I did, she said. I'd offer some comforting words, but the less that's said, the better. I could say I let him win, I said. Did you? Another girl chimed in, interest piqued. Blonde like Helen, but more pixie-ish in many respects. Helen could have been an actress or a model, but this girl made me imagine a ballerina in build and how she was more expressive in general movement. No, but I could say I did, I said. Whatever convinced you to pick a fight with Ed Willard, the brunette asked. Some people are born to be the hero of a story, I said. I was born to be the villain. I see the charming, good-looking, obnoxiously noble type of guy, and I feel compelled to start a battle I'm doomed to lose. (laughs) Does that include monologues while you're winning and standing over the bloody hero? Another girl asked, a smile on her face, suggesting she was well-versed in that sort of thing. Not many girls read the books and dime novels meant for boys. I wouldn't know, I said. You saw my poor showing earlier. I haven't gotten that far. I heard a few chuckles and smiles, and belated realized I'd effectively and accidentally drawn the attention of Helen's entire clique. Heads at other tables and the buffet line were turning, looking at me as some of the more attractive girls in our grade were grouped around me. Okay, wait, I have to poke a hole in your story, a girl closer to Helen's in my age declared. She was a brunette too, but wore her hair longer, with white ribbons that complemented her school uniform. You say you don't get along with good guys, but you get along with Helen's friend Gordon, don't you? If anyone's noble, it's him. Oh, Gordon's a villain at heart, I said. I don't know if he knows it yet, but there is a scoundrel in there just screaming for an excuse. How would you know that, she asked. Because when I was showing these guys around, I saw them with all sorts of people, sometimes in the rougher parts of town. I've seen Gordon here, all nice and ordinary, and I've seen him go toe-to-toe with people you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley, and they walked away respecting him. A half-dozen pairs of eyes turned Gordon's way. He caught sight of a crowd of girls giving him serious looks, and looked about as bewildered as if I'd drawn a gun on him. Miss Ribbons wasn't looking, though. She was focused on me, her right eyebrow raised. I'm not sure I believe you. Pixie Blonde chimed in, turning from Gordon to Ribbons and then to me. She put her hands on her hips. Are you being a good friend and trying to get us interested in your fellow over there? Maybe, I said, smiling. It's good if you've given up on making yourself look good, because that ship sailed hours ago, Miss Ribbons commented. 
That's cruel, another girl said. I quite like Sai here, and it's noble of this little villain to play up his friend. With the words, I quite like Sai, she put her arms around me, giving me a hug. I very nearly ducked out of her grip, but a quick glance at each of her hands suggested that they were empty, with no weapon or needle in evidence. Given the difference in stature, the girl being three years my senior, it pulled the side of my head right into her bosom. A nearby teacher loudly cleared his throat, and my new friend pulled her arms away, raising her hands as if she were being held up. "'Believe it or not,' Helen said, still smiling, acting very much the young coquette. "'Sai isn't lying, for once. What he said about Gordon was true.' That line spawned more conversation, but my focus was on Gordon. He navigated his way through eager young students, holding four plates in two hands. He looked a little wary of joining the group, with so many eyes on him. "'What's going on?' he asked, once he was close enough to ask. "'Just talking,' Helen said. "'Healthy lad,' the girl who'd hugged me said, indicating Gordon's plates. "'For my friends,' Gordon said." Lingering paranoia made me study her expression for any hint of danger. Had she powdered her shirt front with a poison that could be inhaled? Gordon handed us our individual plates, one for me, Helen, Lillian, and Jamie, then asked, Is anyone in dire need of a meal? I was going to go back to serve myself, but I can get more plates. The short-haired brunette raised her hand, smiling way too much at Gordon. That's one, he said. "'I'm getting waved over,' Miss Ribbon said. "'I need to take over for a friend and start serving. "'She's been in the kitchen all day.' "'Good girl. Talk to you later,' Helen said. "'Enjoy your meals,' Miss Ribbon said, before dashing off. "'I watched her retreat, zigzagging through the crowd on the way to the kitchen, "'hair and skirt bouncing before she reunited with the friend she'd mentioned. "'She glanced back, looking at me.' "'I do think Mary likes Sai,' Pixie Blonde said. "'Does Sai like Mary?' another girl asked. "'I'm going to sit,' Helen said. "'Come sit with us, Sai. "'I don't think these girls are going to let you go like this. "'They've got their claws in you, and I don't think they'll let you go.' "'Claws?' a girl asked archly. "'Helen, doing her part to keep us together in a very natural-seeming way.' It took time before everyone had a plate and food. My focus was on the crowd, keeping only enough attention on the conversation to keep up with it. Where were the dynamics? What were the possible approaches for attack? I was exceedingly aware of the state of my food. On such an empty stomach, I couldn't afford to get poisoned. We already knew our enemies were aware of us, so I didn't mind being a little guarded. One girl commented on it even, and I explained it away as a casualty of being from the orphanage. That in itself spawned more discussion. Jamie and Lillian seemed content to be in the background. Jamie was taking it all in. If something happened, he'd be able to tell us who was where. Had I been familiar with the dynamic in the situation, I might have been more on point, aware of when it all started to go wrong. It tied into what Jamie had said about the prey instinct taking in the subconscious details, things that one's mind and attention weren't picking up on. Changes in volume, shifts in tone, the behavior of people at the fringes and in the background. Little boys who were hunched over their plates. It only clicked 
when I saw that dessert was being served and that the cooks and serving girls were looking a little nonplussed, I paid attention to what they were sensing with their own prey instinct. That dessert was being placed on the table, and very few students seemed inclined to go get it. Looking around, I saw expressions of pain, people squirming. Not a lot, but as I watched, I saw it was getting worse. I dropped my knife and fork. Don't eat, I said. Helen, Gordon, Lillian, and Jamie dropped their utensils. They didn't settle for poisoning us. They poisoned everyone. Why? Oh, Irma, the pixie-haired blonde, said. I thought I felt full, but now... She raised a hand to her mouth. Just nausea, Lillian asked. She got a nod. Feverish? Does it hurt? Whatever she was feeling, I didn't experience it. My friends didn't either. Maybe a handful of people had escaped it, whatever it was. My mind was going a mile a minute as I took it in, tried to figure out the approach. What was the goal, the plan? They'd hit everyone, but missed us. Was it an accident, look on our part, Gordon being safe? The teachers are affected too, Gordon said. It doesn't seem to be serious, Lillian said. It'll get explained away as a stomach thing. Something improperly cooked, perhaps. As if to answer her statement, someone threw up. It seemed to set off a chain reaction. People were rising from their seats, hurrying out of the dining hall. The entire school is going to be shut down, I said. Everyone in their beds for at least the next few hours, if not the next day. Everyone. It's not a frame, or they would have left the teachers alone, done more to set us up. Again, I have to wonder, why? My eye fell on Miss Ribbons. I felt the uneasiness watching her. I saw the look in her eyes, just the same as the boys had been. I jerked my head, and the others looked, following my gaze. Miss Ribbons was already making a hasty exit, pulling off her apron. If anyone asked, I bet she'd say she was going to the nurse. Nobody to look after us or keep us out of trouble, I commented. Locking down the school, they were largely free to roam or to feign being sick until our backs were turned, but I suspected it wouldn't be so easy or safe for us. They're making a play, and we're still completely in the dark about what they are and what they're doing. You just finished listening to a chapter from Arc 1, Taking Root, from the web serial Twig by J.C. McRae. This audiobook is read by Kimberly Dauber. If you enjoyed this reading, you can download or listen to all chapters directly on our site at audiotwig.dauber.kim or you can find us on your favorite podcatcher under Twig Audiobook. Thank you for listening.